0: From Romans, chapter 8, verses 18 to 30. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified.
1: And um, What I want to speak about uh, this morning is something that affects every single one of us as human beings. It's one of the most profound subjects that we have to address as human beings. It's the fact that we live in a world which is full of pain and suffering and grief, Now, I'm not going to give you an easy answer or a trite formula to the whole problem of suffering. Beware of people who try to give you those. I think it was H.L. Mencken who said, there are many easy and straightforward and simple answers to the complex questions of life, and each one of them is wrong. So suffering is something that we face as human beings, and it's something that we face as Christians. And... Often it's a challenge to our faith, but often also it brings out something deep from within us as human beings, whether we're believers or whether we're not believers. We see the reality of suffering and pain and grief lived out all around us. We see it perhaps at a personal level, perhaps you're wrestling with something, even this morning, a friend that you know, someone in your family, even you yourself, it might be a health diagnosis, it might have been something that happened this week, just hearing this morning about uh, something that's happened to a friend of somebody in this church, just devastatingly sad what's happened to that friend. And that friend was just saying, how can I be a friend, how can I be a Christian in this particular situation? So we see it personally, we see it played out nationally, we see it played out globally. Particular place names become associated with tragedy, with suffering, with grief. Numbers take on symbolism and significance. So it might be places like Aberfan in Wales. It might be Dunblane or Lockerbie in Scotland. It might be numbers like 9-11 or 7-7 that immediately, instantly resonate with us as things that signify grief and pain and tragedy and loss. I was reflecting over the last couple of weeks as it's 50 years since the Aberfan disaster in Wales where this school, this primary school, was just almost in, well, it was engulfed by this... this River of sludge, this waste coal that had been stored uh, up in the hills, and it just came down from the valleys and, and just came into the valleys and just engulfed this primary school. And over a hundred children, adults were killed. Just a horrendous. But it's one of my earliest memories: is, is sitting watching the TV news that night, and sitting with my mum. I was five years of age, and and sitting and watching the six o'clock news. And my mum just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and sobbing, almost inconsolably as we watched the pictures of this disaster unfolding in Aberfan 50 years ago. And it was a few years later that I realized what was going on because it it, it surprised me how deeply, deeply upset she was. But of course, she was looking at me as a five-year-old and immediately thinking of all the five-year-olds and the six- and seven- and eight- and nine-year-olds who died at Abavan that morning. Years later, I realized that also something else very profound and poignant was going on, because my mum was one of those people who, whenever she came into a church, would immediately burst into tears. Whenever she listened to me preach, she was incredibly angry. You may sympathize with that reaction, <laughs> but it was disproportionately angry. And it was it was decades later that I realized that what was happening was that my mum was was still processing grief that had been repressed for years. Her, her dad died when she her mum died, sorry, when she was um, 13 years of age. And she'd had to, to leave school immediately and go and work for her, 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 her dad, my granddad. And for decades she just stored up this suppressed grief. And Abba Van was one of the first times when I saw that begin to be released, and it devastated my mum. Now likewise, each of you will have particular situations that you can think of, and yet for all the pain, for all the sadness, there is this curious paradox at the heart of suffering. Faced with the greatest pain and suffering, human beings often respond with depth and courage. Indeed, more than that, we look for meaning and significance through our pain. Not everybody does. Um, Some will say the sheer haphazardness of pain should just be endured. Life is just, well, life just is, and it has to be endured. And even to ask the question why is meaningless. It's absurd. You simply have to put up with stuff, grin and bear it. But anthropologists, sociologists, and theologians agree that time and time again, pain and suffering do prompt human beings to reach down deep into themselves and find new depths of character and strength. Last year, I came across a book called The Road to Character by a New York Times columnist called David Brooks. Um, He's Jewish. Um, And what he was doing was writing a book looking at particular characters over the last 200 years of American history. And at one stage in the book he observes this. When people remember the crucial events that formed them, they don't usually talk about happiness. It is usually the ordeals that seem most significant. Most people shoot for happiness but feel formed through suffering. And maybe as you think back through your life, you think about things that have shaped you, things that have formed your character, and it may well be that you can observe and recollect things that were difficult, things that were hard, things that were painful. Not particularly happy experiences. You can remember those as well. But the things that have shaped you, that have formed who you are, were those times of sadness, those times of pain, those times of difficulty. In his book, Brooks observes several things about suffering. He says, Suffering drags you deeper into yourself. Suffering opens up ancient places of pain that have been hidden. It gives people a more accurate sense of our own limitations. It shatters shatters the illusion of self-mastery. And finally, it teaches us gratitude. Another Jewish New York Times columnist, the anthropologist Richard Svader, observes human beings apparently want to be edified by their miseries. Now, by that, he doesn't mean in a sort of sadomasochistic way that we're saying bring on more pain, but somehow we, we look for meaning, we look for hope, we look for something transcendent in the midst of suffering. And it brings out something deeper within the human psyche. The Apostle Paul, another Jew, addresses many, many subjects in the book of Romans. The book of Romans, at times, is a very deep and dense, uh, some would say beautiful, but at times overpowering book of theology. It's full of sharp observations and helpful insights into why the world around us is the way it is and where God can help us make sense of our existence. And it's a book, a letter, that evokes worship out of people. We're going through this sermon series looking at different aspects of God's character and how that informs, how that affects the way that we worship, not just when we're in gatherings like this, but the way that we worship Monday to Saturday. Because despite Julie's Freudian slip, and despite that bringing great joy uh, to Mark's heart, this is not our worship arena. Our worship arena is the rest of our lives. It's Monday to Saturday. It's our jobs. It's our family life. It's our relationships. It's wherever we find ourselves throughout the week. That is our worship arena. That is where we worship God. Most authentically and, some would say, most fully. And all that happens when we we come into a place like this and we come into a time like this is we're consciously remembering and reminding each other who God is. In the songs that we sing, in the prayers that we pray, in the the, the Bible readings that we have, and hopefully in the talks that we hear, we're reminding each other who God is, and it's giving us fuel to worship God in the rest of the week. Some of Paul's sharpest observations and most profound insights are found in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. If you've got a Bible, uh, turn back to Romans chapter 8. If you've got a smartphone uh, with a Bible app on it, turn to Romans chapter 8 and verses 18 to 30, uh, those verses that Julie read for us a few moments ago. Now, in Romans 6, 7, and 8, there are some huge theological themes and subjects. There are some huge theological words Words like justification and sanctification and adoption and predestination, none of which we're going to cover this morning. Because I want to zero in on one particular topic that comes out of these verses from Romans chapter 8 and verses 18 to 30. And it divides, uh, John Stott and his commentary divides it in three ways. Uh, Three groans, three sections of groaning. Creation's groans a Christian or a believer's groan, and then God's groans. And we'll look at that in a minute. So first in verses 18 to 22, we have the groans of creation. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. In verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Now for Paul, there are two words that occur again and again. Suffering and glory. Glory and suffering. So in verse 17, Paul says... If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we might also share in his glory. We share in the suffering of Christ, and therefore we share in the glory of Christ. And here we have the suffering that we're uh, experiencing in this world, in this life, as a, described as a foretaste of the glory that is to come. And what Paul says is that in creation itself, we see both suffering and glory. We see decay, and we see that all around us at the moment in autumn. We see decay, there is decay. And some of us, every time we look in the mirror, see decay. That's the reality of the life and the world and the age that we live in. But also we see glimpses of glory. We see glimpses of glory. All around us we see human frailty, human weakness, human aging, human decay. We see moral decay in our society and in our culture. But also at times we get glimpses of glory. And that's the stuff of the age to come, the amazing, unutterable, indescribable, eternal, immortal, and incorruptible glory of the kingdom of God fully realized. And we get glimpses of that. But as John Stott observed, the glory and the sufferings cannot be compared. They are inseparable, but not comparable, contrasted, but not compared. And so what he's saying here, Paul, is that from time to time, we get glimpses of the new creation. We get glimpses of the new kingdom fully restored, of God's rule, God's reign, the kingdom of heaven here on earth. We pray for that to be so, and we get glimpses of it. We get glimpses of it in in acts of human kindness. We get glimpses of it in, in acts of human generosity. We get glimpses of it in a beautiful sunrise or a beautiful sunset. I don't know about you, but at the moment, every sunset in Edinburgh, it's as though Edinburgh is spoiling us. Um, if you just look out at about sort of, you know, four o'clock uh, at the moment, and you look out and you think, wow, that, the sun is just tinged with red and scarlets and oranges. And, and if you drive up, um, as I did last week, up to Pitt Lockery for a clergy conference and you drive through Perthshire and you see the colors of the trees, you just go, wow, this is amazing. We had our clergy conference in this hotel, the Athol Palace, and uh, every morning we started with a communion service and behind the person who was presiding at communion was a huge bay window just looked out on this amazing, amazing landscape of trees and colors and mountains. and It's the one communion service where you did not want to close your eyes because just behind the person who was celebrating communion was just this amazing aid to worship as these vibrant colors just came as the sun rose. It was just stunning absolutely stunning and Paul says it's a glimpse of glory it's a glimpse of the new creation it's a glimpse of the kingdom that is to come and from time to time we get those glimpses we get glimpses of the world as to how it was always meant to be of how it once was when God made the world and how it will be when God restores all things N.T. Wright in one of his um Book says that one of the things that we're called to do as Christians when we worship is that we're calling out from the whole of creation the reality that creation will be restored and we're calling out of creation we're calling out from the hills we're calling out from the trees we're calling out from the mountains the monroes to worship God because one day God will restore all things all things will be restored in Christ And that's what it means to worship God, to call that out of creation. And he gives us this lovely picture of of creation looking, waiting, eagerly waiting. The Greek word in the original is apokaradokia. And it's a strange word, but it means to wait with head raised, the eye fixed on that point of the horizon, from where the expected object is to come. Someone standing on tiptoe, straining the neck, craning forward. Perhaps like me, remember that that old... I used to sing on beach missions when I was about 18, 19, and all creation straining on tiptoe just to see. And for some reason it goes, and all creation's waiting on tiptoe just to... See. And we would all go, see. But it's like little drop and rest into on tiptoe. And, and Paul's saying that creation, that's a picture, if you like, of the cre- whole of creation straining, waiting, up on, on tiptoe, as if it's waiting, looking for somebody. The whole of creation's doing that because it's looking for the return of Jesus. It's looking for the return of the kingdom. It's looking for the restoration of the whole of creation on tiptoe. Looking. It's evocative of the picture of the prodigal son coming back to the father, although it's the father who's actually prodigious in that story. Looking, waiting, looking. Paul says the whole of creation is doing that. It's looking for the second coming of Jesus, it's looking for the restoration of all things, it's standing on tiptoe. But secondly, there's the groan of the Christian. Not only so, Paul says, verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, eagerly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. He says something is going on in here. It's not just out there. Something is going on deep inside here. We've been given the life of God. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given the presence of God deep inside each and every one of us who've put our faith in Christ. And that means that there is always going to be a tension inside us. There should always be a tension inside us because we get a glimpse, we get an insight into what life could be like. And therefore that makes us dissatisfied with life as it is. So we have the first fruits, Paul says. We have the down payment, the pledge, the deposit, of what will come when the kingdom of God is fully realized and fully restored. And we have glimpses of that because we have God himself living in us. And that will create this inattention that will lead us at times to groan because we know that this world is not all that there is. And we know that this world is not as it should be. It's not as it once was and it's not as it will be. That there is more. And so we wait patiently, Paul says, verse 25. But even more so, it's not just that we groan deep on the inside, but God himself groans. Verses 26 to 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So Jesus intercedes for us, but here Paul says the Holy Spirit also intercedes for us. What's he describing? Well, sometimes he's describing those times when you're faced with a situation and you just don't know how to pray. And you just think, what? It's that inward And Paul says, when you get to that situation, the Spirit himself will intercede for you. And the Spirit himself, with groans too deep for words, also will intercede with groans. Now, this might be referring sometimes to when people pray in tongues or they pray in the Spirit. Sometimes you may have been in a situation, uh, you've been in in a church service perhaps, and someone's just started to cry. Remember a couple of years ago at the leadership conference um, at the Royal Albert Hall, uh, Mike Pulevacci on the, the first night, on the Monday night, just felt prompted that we should wait. So imagine... 5,000 people in the Albert Hall from all across the world, most of them church leaders, most of us preachers, most of us who would give our eye teeth to be asked to speak at the Royal Albert Hall to 5,000 people. I that's a sort of confession. You know, that is the gig above all gigs. Mike Pilavachi has been given that opportunity. He comes out and he says, I believe that God has told me just to wait And you could almost hear all the preachers going, you have got to be joking. <laughs> Most of us would bring out our best talks, our best illustrations, our best stories, our best jokes. Mike have actually said, I think we should just wait upon God. And so we waited. 5,000 people standing in the Royal Albert Hall waiting as Mike just prayed, very ancient prayer of the church, come Holy Spirit. Somebody starts to shout out, and Mike just said, no, no. Nope. Someone else started to pray, said, nope, nope, nope. We must have waited for about 14 or 15 minutes. Mike confessed later off stage that at about 11 minutes, he was saying to God, are you sure? <laughs> but then somebody up in the balcony, the top balcony, started to cry. And Mike simply said, here he comes. Here he comes. And it was, I can only describe it as like a wave that came across. It was like a wave. It was like a ripple effect starting from the balcony and just coming across the Royal Albert Hall. And one person, and then another, and then another, and then another, and then another, just started to weep. And it wasn't just normal it wasn't sort of British sniffs. This was guttural weeping, sobbing, heart-wrenching stuff. Not all of us cried, only about 50 people I could see were crying. The rest of us were thinking, I have to be on that stage speaking. <laughs> but I think people were being given the gift of interceding with groans too deep for words. God was showing them his heart for the world and his heart for the church and his heart for what was happening in the world at that time. So that may be what Paul is referring to as groans too deep for words. Maybe it is that sense of praying in tongues sometimes. Maybe it is that sense in John chapter 11 where we're told Jesus deeply moved in spirit and troubled when he's at the graveside of his friend Lazarus. Literally the Greek translation is he snorted like a horse. Imagine Jesus snorting like a horse. But it's always a... It's just anger at what death's done to his friend. Anger at Satan, what he's done. Anger at what sin has done. Maybe just deep, deep, deep grief at the graveside of his friend Lazarus. Maybe it's that that's being referred to. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. And it's in the light of all that that the world around us is not the way that God made it, that creation itself is affected and infected with the consequences of human sin and frailty, that creation itself groans for restoration, and we groan as we see sin and suffering and pain and poverty and injustice and equality and recognize that God himself shares our pain and actually... Feels it far more than we do. And prayer is not so much us sharing our hearts with God, but maybe more profoundly, it's God sharing His heart with us. And Paul concludes, therefore, verse 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who've been called according to His purpose. And it builds to a climax by the end of what we call chapter 8, where He just goes. Further and further by saying, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, the present nor the future, any powers, height or depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul says, you can bring it all and you can share in God's heart and you can tell God and you can share God your suffering because we worship a God and we're in a relationship with a God who suffered. And then when we tell God about the injustice, when we tell God about the inequality, when we tell God our pain, we are talking to somebody who knows exactly what it's like because he's felt it. It's unique to the Christian faith. It's not there in Hinduism or Buddhism or Sikhism or Islam or even Judaism. The idea of God suffering is anathema. But in the Christian faith, we have a God who suffers. And so we can bring all our pain, we can bring all our frustration, we can bring all our sense of injustice, we can bring all our sense of of hopelessness sometimes, and we can share it with God because he has felt it first. I was hearing this week about a woman who, after 18 years of of marriage, just came home one day and her husband just decided to leave them. They had four kids and he just got the kids together and said, I'm leaving for another woman, friend of the family. And this woman was ended up divorced against her will, utterly alone and just bereft. And, and a very wise friend just came to her one day and, and said, "You will need to force feed yourself from Scripture." And she didn't feel like it, and she didn't want to, but she began to read the Bible, particularly the Psalms, each day. And as she read the Psalms and as she decided to remind herself who God is, she recognized that God was in control. And God started to heal her, and God started to form her. It didn't deny the pain, it didn't deny the sadness, it didn't deny the hurt, but she started to look at life and herself in a different way. And that's what happens when we worship in the face of pain and suffering, tragedy and injustice. Paradoxically and profoundly, as we choose to worship God, something happens. It's not, it's not self-confidence, it's not sort of easy believism. Some people, for some people it's been um, maybe in a our, our, our service like our 9 o'clock service or Choral song. Spoken to so many people down the years that when they get to the point where life is so difficult and so painful that they just can't pray, what they found so helpful is to come into the context of a liturgical service and use prayers that other people have written and be held by the prayers of other people. Numerous people I've spoken to over the years have found it a real help to go to St. Mary's Cathedral in the west end of Edinburgh. And it's not part of their tradition or experience at all, but they go into a choral even song and they just feel held in what is perhaps the coldest building in Christendom. (laughs) But something profound happens to them because they're held in other people's prayers happened to me five years ago when both my parents died within six months and you were so kind and so generous to me as a church but it really helped me because the first few times coming to church was was difficult It always is after after grief it's always painful because because music has the knack of getting under the skin and there was a song that we sang and bless the Lord 10,000 reasons and Mark seemed to pick it every week bless you and um (laughs) There was something about the third line, at the third verse, which every time we sang it got me. And on that day when my strength is fading, the end draws near, and my time has come, still my soul will sing your praise and ending 10,000 years and then forevermore. Bless the Lord, O my soul. It's a decision of the will. I am going to trust God. I am going to put my hope in God. Despite my circumstances, indeed maybe because of my circumstances, that I just can't understand and I cannot endure by myself, I will trust you. I will bless you. Bless the Lord, O my soul. It's the psalmist telling himself to bless the Lord. Telling himself to trust God. Telling himself, remember who God is. Remember that he's kind. Remember that he's powerful. Remember that he's sovereign. Remember that he's Lord. The two songs that we'll finish the service with this morning are songs like that. Good, good father. One of the reasons that bless the Lord and good, good father are so popular and they've gone so quickly around the world is that they proclaim truth. They remind us of who God is. Our final song, No Longer Slaves, proclaims truth truth. It reminds us what God has done. Whatever situation you find yourself in this morning, whatever situation you may face this week, God is sovereign and God is good and God is kind and God wants to strengthen you this morning and he wants you to come and to share your suffering, share your pain and share your frustration with him because he loves you. And he feels it far more than you do.